Hi, I'm Andrew Muir, Creative Director at Ardent Theatre. If you enjoy this show, please share, subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. In 1980s Britain, the anti-apartheid movement drew nationwide support. Its mission was to end South Africa's racist apartheid system. And as reports from that country showed increasing violence, support for anti-apartheid grew. It was a welcome shift for veteran campaigners Christopel Gurney and Nadia Joseph. With the media coverage, we could look at, my goodness, this system is actually attacking children. It's shooting children. I'm Andrew Muir, and this is Activism in the 80s, where we chart the protests and culture wars that changed lives in Britain, Ireland and beyond. In this episode, Nadia and Christabel remember the boycotts and rallies that helped end apartheid with fellow campaigner Leila Kukbara. conversation starts with Nadia talking about how she became part of the anti-apartheid movement. Well, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was something that I was born into because my parents left South Africa as political exiles. Although at the time, my mother didn't know she was going into political exile. She had left in 1965 with my disabled brother, thinking that she could return. But my father, who'd been very active in the struggle against South Africa, apartheid, he had been imprisoned and tortured and his comrades thought he may be under pressure to turn state witness. And he didn't and he had no intention of, but they weren't to know that. And so word got out to my mum that she shouldn't try to come back. And so my sisters were smuggled out of the country. My father fled and I was born the following year in London. So it's all I knew really from a very early age. Christabel, you were involved in the anti-apartheid movement for a long time but it really took off in the mid-80s. How did that happen? I was first involved in the process against the cricket and rugby tours in 1969. But really, for a long time, the anti-apartheid movement was just run by a small group of very determined people, some of them South African exiles. And it was only really in the 80s that it took off in a big way among masses of people here in Britain. And I think it was largely in response to what was going on in South Africa, because for a long time, the apartheid government had been very successful in shutting down anti-apartheid protests in South Africa. There were the 1976 Soweto student uprisings. But in the early and mid-80s, there was an eruption in the townships because more and more people were coming to work in the townships and there wasn't decent housing. Wages were very, very breadline. And so every night in 1985 on British telly, there were pictures of South African troops going into the townships and opening fire on people. So that was a terrific encouragement to British people to do something about it. And the anti-apartheid movement was there, organised, ready to take advantage of that. There was also the question of Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, was implacably opposed to sanctions in everything the anti-apartheid movement stood for. Although she won three elections in a row, she was a hugely divisive figure. And the anti-apartheid movement became the international wing of the anti-Thatcher protest. And so there was a, a huge spread of people who were involved in other issues, like the miners' strike, who also started supporting the anti-apartheid movement. That's interesting because I joined the anti-apartheid movement in the mid-80s, about 1986, 87. 
And I, I didn't necessarily know how I had become activated. I was aware of apartheid. I had gone to university in Nigeria where we had South African students and Zimbabwean students exiled with us in university, some of whom I was really good friends with. And I'd been conscious that apartheid was something that was unacceptable. It was viscerally a problem for me. And so I joined the anti-apartheid movement. But with all the things that were happening in the world, what was it that actually made the anti-apartheid movement take off in the way that it did? I think there was a kind of evolution. And when uh, Mandela and his comrades went into jail for life in the early 60s, quite a lot of the liberation movement had either been incarcerated themselves, they'd gone into exile, or they'd been killed. And then the period of time that Christabel's talking about, the 70s to the 80s, that resurgence of, of activism, followed through the whole black consciousness movement, Steve Biko, the Soweto uprising. But in terms of what the campaign outside could do and galvanise public opinion to change things, I think with the media coverage that Christabel's referring to, those were the ways that we could look at, my goodness, this system is actually attacking children. It's shooting children. We'd already had Sharpville in the early 60s, but people hadn't seen that as widely. All those things you're talking about, whether it was against the bomb, against Thatcher and all her policies that were really impacting education here, the rights of children, the rights of women, that found a focus because South Africa represented all of those sorts of oppressions it offered an opportunity for different groups to come together, and especially within the trade union movement in support of people in South Africa's regime. The anti-apartheid movement was also very good on its marketing. It produced what we called merchandise, which was <laughs> badges, T-shirts, and then music. There was a huge eruption of anti-apartheid songs and music. This culminated in 1988 in the concert asking for the freedom of Nelson Mandela, but it had been going on for a long time. And so that created a new mass audience. I remember I was a local anti-apartheid activist in Southwark and I was co-chair of the Southwark anti-apartheid group. And I remember this arrangement whereby we took guidance from the central anti-apartheid movement across the country. So there were loads and loads of little anti-apartheid groups all over the place that were doing the same thing on different days on the same issues. And with hindsight, that feels to me like a massive systematic way of organising ordinary grassroots people to give change. And I remember lots of innovative campaigns, which we did as a group. So I don't know whether Nadia, you or Christabel remember any of those organised and coordinated but different local efforts. Definitely, definitely. I was born in West London, so my parents, along with Christabel and other people in that area who have remained activists in all sorts of ways, were very involved and the whole movement was very linked with other struggles in that area. When they moved to North London, we were in the Barnet anti-apartheid group. And it's interesting what you say about people coming together, because within that group, there were all sorts of people, people involved in churches, people in the Labour Party, 
teachers, all sorts of people, and exiles. And the movement was saying to people, can you go and boycott Tesco's or wherever on a Saturday morning? Christabel was very involved with the anti-apartheid news editor. We would go out and sell that. On the weekend, I'd go with my dad and my sisters and other people were doing it in their parts of the country. So it really did have a very organic in some ways, unified form of action because it was unique to the location, whether it was boycotting, picketing outside Shell. People were organising those in quite a strategic way. Yes, and I remember, Christabel, you talked about the merchandise, which can seem trivial, but actually we had the anti-apartheid news, which was serious, and we had our badges and mugs and T-shirts and so on to sell on our stalls. So while we're getting people to sign petitions and so on, we actually had stuff to engage the public with. Yes, I think the boycott was very important because it was something everybody could do. You could just not buy a South African apple and not say anything, but just do it. But also, as a local group, you could go and stand outside your local Sainsbury or Tesco every Saturday morning or once a month, as we do in Notting Hill. And also the campaign against Barclays Bank was the same because every high street had a Barclays Bank. And we turned up outside Barclays Banks and the anti-apartheid movement had frequent Barclays Days of Action and students boycotted Barclays and stopped Barclays operating at student fresh affairs and Barclays wanted student accounts. So the anti-apartheid movement provided very straightforward things that everyone could do and that they could do either on their own or they could do in groups or other organisations could do. Camden Council, for example, withdrew its account from Barclays Bank. It was kind of focused in a very... um, Yeah, positive. We'll come back to Barclays as a victory. Nadia, you mentioned Shell. So we had a Shell garage on Walworth Road. It's still there, actually. And we had this amazing, colourful poster that mixed up the colours of Shell plus the colours of anti-apartheid and so on. And it said, Shell fuels apartheid, boycott Shell. And we would stand outside there. So we had something every week. We'd sometimes stand outside the local supermarket, sometimes outside the Shell Garage, sometimes outside Barclays. It was quite a big part of our social life. The other thing I remember, and I don't know if either of you were involved with going to the Shell annual general meetings, because I remember I was bought one share to go to those AGMs, eat the canapes and drink the champagne at the beginning, and then disrupt the whole meeting by asking questions, then standing up and chanting. And it was just sweetened by the fact of having eaten the canapes and drank the champagne. And we did that every year for quite a while. And I didn't know that the same had happened for Barclays. So I think it was a great thing to do. One thing would be good to talk about then, what were the successes in the 80s? Well, a lot of companies withdrew from South Africa in the 80s, partly because of what was going on in South Africa and the unrest and the state of the South African economy. But it was also the reputational damage, especially with Barclays, I think. Barclays pulled out in 1986. So that was a huge victory. The other victory was the sports boycott that dated from the early 70s. Every major sporting federation had expelled South Africa and there were occasional tours, rogue tours like the Gatting Tour in the late 80s where the cricketers were being paid handsomely to go. That was a very unpopular thing to do and the Gatting Cricket Tour was a disaster. 
I think it's interesting as well because people had been doing these things for a long time, calling for sports boycotts, boycotting goods, and it just over time became a bigger thing. And with Barclays, I think it was a particularly powerful boycott because students involved in the NUS were getting involved in their campuses and they were becoming conscious and often people would say well what can one person do and those conversations were suddenly translating into results because enough students were boycotting people started seeing on a really huge scale the impact of individuals coming together collectively and that in itself was a victory just in terms of mobilization and encouragement to people I think. Yes and it was a collective action at a time when there was no technology how on earth did we manage when there were no mobile phones, for example? There was no internet. Had to have a movement across the whole country with no technology I think it was simpler. <laughs> Leila, Leila, don't you remember how we turned out outside tube stations on high streets with those thousands of leaflets? Sometimes, like every tube station in London, we were supposed to be leafleting outside. Nadia, what was your memory? Well, you talked about the limitations of not having the technology we have now. You would have to say, will you be home at six o'clock? I might phone you, I might drop some leaflets off, I'll meet you. But people were really motivated to get involved. It was an incredibly invigorating time in terms of activism. And it was from children right up to elders and people could do what they felt comfortable with. I know in Barnet Anti-Apartheid, the first sponsored walk I went on, I was seven. But there were people that were really quite elderly. Um, they were doing what they could. It wasn't particularly strenuous, but it was something local. It got people talking. And then there were the huge demos in London, which involved a lot of planning and stewarding and all of those things. But what was wonderful is it was lots and lots of people in lots of branches across the country. And then these really big moments where people would come together. It was just very inspiring, yes. I think. Speaking of technology, we used to have these phone trees and I found it not that long ago. And it was this list of names and landline numbers. And if something happened in South Africa, which there was a call to action about, and that could be to stop an execution, calling for a particular law not to go through, whatever it was... And there'll be an urgent action and somebody from our local group would be called by, say, the National Office of the Anti-Apartheid Movement. And then we would cascade this information through the phone tree. For me, I would phone Christabel, Christabel would phone Nadia and so on. And if the person you were supposed to call wasn't there, you then phone the next person along and so on, so that the tree would keep going. And I look at that now and I think you'd have just had a WhatsApp group or something. But there we were, one phone call after the other, and it actually worked. So if we were doing that kind of action and triggered the tree, we would get loads of people out from across, for us, Southwark, to turn up either at Trafalgar Square or somewhere locally or whatever. And I think in some ways it was made it stronger as activism. I think it's that kind of activism is much more involving than sending a tweet. Or I think I agree totally because we feel that we've got all these means of communication, which we do now, but the urgency and the, the need to just cut through everything and get on with it and be out there and be committed, it was far simpler. And then with the merchandisers, all those things, wearing badges, having the leaflets, wearing the T-shirts, you were, we didn't have any social media platforms. We were the social media. It's true. And we had to just go out there with banners, homemade placards, 
the rest of it and just be really present. It's true. Sounds like there's something about the ideology, the mindset, the values that was cross-cutting. And I think, Nadia, you had mentioned a few examples of mm. that kind of coming together through yes. values. I mean, I think it's it's really good to remember that in South Africa itself, it was such a stratified society. There was such extreme inequality. And yet, if you were to look at the famous photograph of the treason trial in 1956... In that group of 156, apart from the fact that obviously I have a personal link because my dad was there and many, many of the leaders were there, Mandela, Sisulu, Albertina, there were all sorts of people involved. But what's really interesting is that the racial mix is incredible. There were primarily lots of black South Africans, but lots of whites and Indians and what in South Africa were called coloured people. And I say to people when I meet them now, you know, there's such a divide. People say, oh, we can't get together. We don't share the same views. If people can come together when it's at great risk and think, what is our purpose? What's our collective purpose? And that's a wonderful example. And certainly when we were involved in the march to free Mandela at 70 here, the amount of people that supported that campaign, there was people like Christabel, you were saying about the miners, they came and joined us up in Durham, they walked with us, students, MPs, people involved in churches, huge amount of people in churches, they actually gave us place to stay. It was incredible. So you had a great swathe of people from all sorts of places. I mean, we also met by the National Front. <laughs> we also had difficulties. Um, when I came back to London, the National Front had contacted the youth club where I worked and said, you've got a terrorist working for you. And, and I went through a whole process where I actually had to leave my job. There were repercussions from the action, but overall, it was really positive. I remember being in North Yorkshire on that march and we went into a pub at half time and we were having a break <laughs> and somebody, it was a lovely atmosphere, I'd never been there and somebody at the bar touched my cheek and said, oh, it doesn't come off. And it was really quite horrific but there was an interesting response to that because some of the marchers felt very un- angry and upset and wanted to challenge this but another said, no, let's get together, let's talk about how we're going to deal with this. So even those moments, whereas ordinarily we might have been on our own, I don't know what experiences you had as a person growing up here, When you were in that collective, it was really encouraging. And so those are all examples of these extremes. But people kind of coming together as students, as workers, as trade unionists, as teachers, so many different levels. And there were so many campaigns that brought us all together. So you'd see people with their badges and they'd have anti-apartheid and also save the NHS and help the miners and anti-Nazi league and everything that was all there against the bomb, all of that. So you you kind of thought, oh, that's a like-minded comrade there. There's a potential friend there. And I think that was a wonderful thing. I do think that the solidarity thing is so huge and there is something uncompetitive and communal about that coming together. And one of my memories of these cross-cutting intersectional themes was Mandela visiting the Lawrence family after Stephen Lawrence had been murdered, the police investigation was just poor. And one of the things we did as the Black Solidarity Committee of the anti-apartheid movement was to push for and secure a breakfast meeting. Mandela had a full agenda and it was like, how are you going to squash a meeting in with the Lawrence family, for goodness sake? But actually he chose, he chose to prioritise doing that. 
And it was fantastic. And Doreen Lawrence till today will talk about the impact that that had on her morale, but also on the change in attitudes with the police. So that sense of there's an underpinning set of things that we all believe in, and we might choose to focus on the justice for the minors or justice for Stephen Lawrence or whatever, but fundamentally there's something that connects us. And I think that was something quite interesting. And there's also that quote from Mandela about Palestine as well, which has definitely had currency recently with, you know, we're not free until Palestine's free. There's been loads of campaigns that people that fought against apartheid were also really committed to globally. And so I think it actually raised consciousness and awareness. It was an education by being active. You learn from others. I mean, I'm learning from you today about what you did in South London, you know, that I wasn't involved in. Different permutations of the same goal, really. And I think it did. We met so many wonderful people. Yes. Really committed. And that's probably why we're still all friends till today, a lot of us, because... There was something about believing in a world that needs to be different, that kind of united across these different issues and still does. And people remember now, especially trade unionists, who being a trade unionist now is tough, but they still remember that that was the most committed and inspiring thing they did because there were a lot of trade unions involved in the anti-apartheid movement. It's very noticeable. And especially, as you say now, Christabel, with this whole atmosphere about trade unions and their ability to mobilise and the issues that we're facing again about inequality here in this country, it's really interesting how they themselves have got some resurgence here. I think that's really... Yeah. And what, one of the things, I think, Nadia, when you were talking about the solidarity across different ethnic groups and communities in South Africa... One of the things I noticed, which I hadn't picked up until fairly recently, in the last, like, five or ten years, was how many Jewish South Africans were anti-apartheid. And, in fact, the number of prominent senior legal people that were involved at the time. I thought that was quite interesting. I hadn't particularly noticed. I hadn't been aware of that being anything. Amongst the left wing, Amongst the left wing. It's absolutely true, and it has a huge history, which we probably can't go into now, (laughs) that they came from Eastern Europe and Lithuania in particular, where the Bund, which was the left, not at all Zionist organisation, came from, and they had been involved in left-wing politics, and their parents had been involved in Mm left-wing politics back in Eastern Europe. Yeah. There was this fascinating... fascinating (laughs) Little threads and things that you pick up. So I thought, oh, I can notice, wow. I hadn't noticed that before. There's a significant Jewish contingent, South African contingent, that have been prominent in the struggle against apartheid. And that was one of the ironies, really, but also one of the beauties of being a child of exiles because there we were fighting this kind of racist world in South Africa and here... And yet, meetings that we went to, there were all sorts of people. So we had Jewish friends, we had black South African friends, we had Caribbean friends. It was just a melting pot, literally a melting pot of so many different communities. And yet, we're fighting against this kind of very divided world. So, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And I think that that coming together made a lie of what the apartheid regime was trying to do, the separateness, separate development. It was like... No, that's not who we are. And I think that was a clear and key message then. The other thing I wonder about is with the momentum towards change in South Africa, Christabel, you were editing at the time Anti-Apartheid News. 
Were you expecting the change that came? No, I don't think we were. I think for a lot of us, anti-apartheid became a way of life. It was just something you went on doing. And actually, when Mandela was released, there was great joy. And it did seem like the beginning of the end. But it was a problem for the anti-apartheid movement because a lot of people thought it was all over. And the anti-apartheid movement very much didn't think it was all over. We thought there would be some sort of compromise brokered by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan that would be very much short of a genuine democratic country run by the majority of its people. And so it was a kind of double-edged situation. What was your yeah, memory um, It's an interesting question, Leila, because on the one hand, the figurehead of Mandela was really important and became increasingly so. With his release, people didn't really think about what has been lost and what has been gained in this process. The economic ties that still very much South Africa was dependent upon and the deals that were being struck and degrees of compromise. It was very, very difficult. So on the one hand, it was fantastic to have Mandela Free and his comrades, but there was a sense of, OK, how will this all translate on the ground in South Africa? Those are interesting points that you both make, Nadia and Christabel, but I wonder whether that was something that everyday people were conscious of. I recall just feeling elation it was like the best thing that could ever have happened. And it was quite a while later that I realised that the release of Mandela was the beginning and not the end. <laughs> For me, some of that realisation was about the condition of black people, not just in South Africa, but across the world, and realising that there's a lot of stuff that has not changed for the ordinary, everyday black person. So I don't know whether from your circles what the reactions were for people who were less involved, perhaps. I think, Leila, the problem was the people who were less involved thought that it was all over. And also that was partly because Mandela had been so built up as, as, as the, the one, as the central figure. And so it was very hard. The anti movement couldn't raise money after 1990 to carry on. Certainly at school and college and on the streets, London was still a very racist place as well. We were in pockets of security when we were amongst our comrades, but certainly in my experience on the streets in London, racism is still rife and there was still a lot of ignorance. And I think some of the people got involved because they were excited about something happening. So there were lots of campaigns and lots of issues that were about political structural inequalities. And sometimes people jumped on the bandwagon but not necessarily really getting underneath. And so there was still a lot of work to do there. There's always an issue with singling out a person to represent a struggle or a movement because they just represent a part of something and they're not the whole thing. And there were lots of struggles that were ongoing that didn't succeed. Anti-apartheid movement did, in terms of its core aims, its aims were to release Mandela and other political prisoners to end apartheid as a legal structure, and it did that. So in that sense, it was successful. What were your feelings, Christabel, at that time and potentially subsequently? My initial personal feeling was, oh, now I can go and campaign on something else. And I wanted to go and campaign on eco-issues, and particularly at the time, the big 
news item was the Newbury bypass. And I thought, I will become an eco campaigner and I will campaign against roads. And I went on a demo to Newbury, which was great. We walked through the woods. But then I realised that the nitty gritty of campaigning against roads, do you remember Swampy, Leila and Nadia? Swampy tunnelled into, um, into the ground where the Newbury bypass was going to be built and wouldn't come out and other people were in the trees. And I thought, actually, whatever, however strongly I feel about this, this is not for me. <laughs> and so it didn't quite work out. And then the anti-apartheid movement, the core people who are still involved, didn't want to give up and formed a new organisation, Action for Southern Africa, to try to support the new South Africa and the other newly liberated countries of Southern Africa in overcoming the huge legacy of apartheid. We did realise that one person and one vote wasn't all there was to it. There was a huge economic and socio-economic legacy and races, a legacy of racism absolutely. in Africa, and, and we wanted to change that. Yes, absolutely. And I think certainly for me that was why I was got involved and stayed involved so long, was that thing of actually the str- underlying structural issues have not shifted significantly. Nadia, what were your thoughts about the victory and the wider... The victory, when I was young, all we ever heard was my parents, would they be able to go home? So finally they could go home and be there with their family and comrades and never expected to be here this long. They came here as relatively young people. So that was a wonderful thing and we were all thrilled. And only really after do people start to think what price was paid for that victory. I think there had been lots of concerns about how things would develop after. And there were lots of things that were complex. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the development of the country, universal franchise. There were complexities to how people would be able to become active citizens and raise fairness and distribution across the country. Well, they were issues that concerned everybody and it was a big thing. We were so keen to kind of get apartheid to an end, but the actual development, the long-term development and the complexities of that was another matter altogether. But that kind of came later, certainly in the instance of his release, it was absolute joy. I mean, we just couldn't believe it. You've both talked, um, Nadia and Christabel, about different responses and thoughts about the time. And looking back now, I realise that the anti-apartheid movement actually changed my life in quite a fundamental way and has shaped what I've done. Even what I do now in terms of being a director of Black Thrive in the UK, the victory created a belief and a knowledge, embodied knowledge in me, that change is possible. And that's what I feel has changed my life. So regardless of what the issues and challenges have been, the fact that there was a fight for something that we won and that it wasn't an accident. It was heart-fought, led by South African, African and Asian South Africans, who we took the lead from. So the model of taking the lead from the people, ordinary people of the country who were fighting for their freedom supporting them in a very structured and organised way, and a way that was fun as well, to be honest, because I don't think I'd have... I'm not sure at my age then, early 20s, that I'd have stuck with it if it hadn't been fun, actually. (laughs) To take that and to follow it through and be disciplined in landing something, it just 
changed the whole way I think about what's possible. So even till today, people talk about racism in Britain, which is still present. But what I know is it doesn't have to be that way. And I know that from the bottom of my heart because of the anti-apartheid movement. That knowledge changes how I behave and what I aspire to do. That knowledge that change is possible. Leila Kugbara, Nadia Joseph and Christabel Gurney speaking there about their decades-long campaign to bring a measure of justice to a divided world. Many thanks to all three of them for sharing their experiences. Next time on Activism in the 80s, we meet three female theatre professionals who faced a glass ceiling made of stone. It was very, very blatant. Women were over 50% of the audience. More women were going to the theatre than men, and yet all the establishment theatres were run by men at that time. The next episode of Activism in the 80s is available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Activism in the 80s is a podcast series recorded in response to the play Strike, written by Tracy Ryan and produced by Ardent Theatre Company at the Southwark Playhouse London in April 2023. This series has been funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and was produced by Creative Kin.